0: Welcome to the Cap City Church podcast. This is the recording of our Sunday message. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged as you listen to this. Enjoy. How are you all doing this morning? It is good to see you all. I was was gutted to not be here last Sunday and I really, really missed not being in church on Sunday. I was talking to a a friend of mine who lives on the same street, a neighbour of mine, uh, about not being in church on Sunday, and he, uh, and he kind of asked, oh, was it, was it nice to have a break from, from being in church on Sunday? And, um, you know, kind of naturally, I thought, oh, yeah, it was lovely, didn't have to do very much, it was nice having a lower, slower pace of the day. But, but genuinely, I said, no, do you know what, I honestly, I missed being there. It didn't feel right, my whole Sunday fell off, and I missed being with family. And it was a wonderful opportunity to kind of lead the conversation that way with him, but I genuinely, I missed being here. And uh, I think what Abby said just now, I think, is so important. And I, and I try and keep in the front of my mind any time uh, that I'm in church, whether I'm speaking or whether I'm listening to somebody else speak, is that when we, when we come into the presence of God, when we place ourselves, when we position ourselves in such a way that we are looking to hear the voice of God, to step into the presence of God, then there is always the potential for anything. And I think it's, it's important to hear that. As I've been in... I've been in churches, I've been in services where um, let's be honest, they, they weren't very good. And I'm not talking about Cap City because we're always we're always at least pretty pretty darn good here. But but I've I've been in church services where it was particularly dire and yet God breaks through. And that, that something is said, the word of God is open, something is prayed, and, and God breaks into those situations. And I find that encouraging because it, it means that as Abby was saying, we, you know, we're recording these messages now and, and there's that extra added pressure because what you say is not going to be just forgotten within a couple of hours and you can move on, but it's out there and it's documented. But the idea is, is it doesn't matter so much what we say because ultimately what we are drawing on is that God would move, is that the preparation of the speaker is that, is that so long as they're opening the word of God, the power and the potential for, to God, for God to move and for God to do something incredible is always there. And so this morning we're, we're continuing with this series called Take a Stand as we're looking through the armor of God. And, uh, and somehow I've managed to get myself in a situation where I'm going to do two in one this morning. We're going to get two sermons for the price of one. I'm going to speak twice as quickly and we're going to be done twice as fast. I don't know. Let's see how that works. If I could just share a, a little bit of a, of a revelation that I've had recently. is we've been doing this series, as we've been thinking about what it means to, to take a stand, to prepare ourselves with the armor that God has given us, with the things that God has provided for us as we walk the Christian life, to take that stand, to be able to uh, not only defend our position, but to advance in the way that God has called us to. And if I'm completely honest, my faith has been feeling particularly tired as of late. And it's one of these things that, that in recent times, I've just felt like I'm, I'm just about hanging on sometimes. That I don't, I don't feel particularly bold, I don't feel particularly effective. I don't feel particularly powerful. And the reality has got the same conviction. I have the same confidence in Jesus that he is my salvation, that he is the hope for the world, that, that I have no hope other than him as we've just been seeing. And that, that, that confidence, that belief has not waned, it's not disappeared, but it just feels like my Christian faith has been put on the back burner. My life is lacking power and purpose and focus. Anyone else ever had that experience at times? You just feel your faith has kind, of, has kind of fallen flat. That you've not got that enthusiasm that you once had. That, that things don't seem to be as easy. That, that following Jesus doesn't have the same kind of joy and enthusiasm that it has sometimes had in your life. And what I found most concerning, as I've reflected on this in, in recent days, is that I don't think this has taken place uh, as a result of anything major that's happened. There's no, no great event that's kind of just stopped this. But it's, it's happened out of routine and out of busyness and out of distraction and just the normal things that come through life. And it feels like my focus has just been shifted away from Jesus. And as a result, my faith has, has got quieter and quieter within my life. And it just feels like it's crept up on me. And we've said many times before in church that, that Jesus' purpose in calling you to him, the part of Jesus' focus in bringing you in to his family, is to equip you to live with that powerful and effective faith. That the, the purpose is not just to bring you into the family of God so you can just get by or you can just hold it together. And, and I want to say as an aside there that sometimes that is exactly what Jesus is looking to do in our life. Sometimes that the, the, the calling of Jesus is just to stay faithful is to lean into him, is to keep going and keep trusting and keep the faith in spite of overwhelming trouble. Sometimes life is tough enough that God is just calling you to hang on in there and sometimes that in itself is a great act of faith. That's a sermon for another day but the reality is we are called and more importantly we are equipped to make a difference in the world around us. We're called and equipped to overcome the challenges that we face, to thrive in spite of difficulties and to bring heaven to earth through our daily lives. That is what Jesus has placed before us. That's what he calls us to, and that is what he equips us for. Jesus understands these kind of challenges in our life. Uh, in, in the description of the, the parable of the sower, Jesus gives this particularly interesting insight. He says in Mark chapter 4 verse 19, he says, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. And I was thinking about that. So often what it is in life, it's not those big moments of, of things that knock back our faith or knock down our focus on Jesus, but it's just these little things that seem to grow up alongside the problems, just worrying about life, pursuing things that aren't good for us, Running after stuff that is just choking the word of God out of our life. Making our lives unfruitful. And the focus there is God's intention for your life then, by inference, is that it should be fruitful. That God's longing is that your life would produce fruit. Fruit in keeping with the gospel. When we look at the fruit of the Spirit, these are the things that we want to see growing out into our lives. Not just for our benefit, but for the benefit of those around us. And as we think about this this idea of spiritual warfare, as we look at the armor of God, Jesus adds to the mix that there is an enemy out there who wants to see us fail, who does not want us to succeed. Uh, In another parable, Jesus tells with a very similar theme and focus. In Matthew 13, uh, it says, Jesus told him another parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who goes and sows good seed in a field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy." came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Jesus says that that there is an enemy of your soul out there. There There is a force in this world that desires to see you fail, that does not want to see you walking in fruitfulness, that does not want to see all that God has for you and your life come to fruition. But what we're told is that God desires us to be equipped and prepared for all the world and the devil might throw at us. That we are to be wary about the challenges that we will inevitably encounter. And so that we're prepared and that we won't be caught off guard. And so, as we've looked through this series, we looked at the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes that are the gospel of peace. And what we pick up in Ephesians 6, verses 16 and 17, and I've got it on the screen for you there. He says, In addition to all this, and so he's, in, I've g- he's given us these, these equipment, these, these ideas, these spiritual armor that will help us to stand firm to take the stand that God has called us. He says in addition to all this take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. We're not going to get to the sword of the spirit till next week so we'll just reel that one in ever so slightly. But we want to look this morning at the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. Do you know if you google shield of faith and again I know that people's Google searches are slightly in tune with what they normally look for, so I don't know what this says about me. But the first thing that came up in my search was Dungeons & Dragons. I got got D&D results for the shield of faith. I've never played Dungeons & Dragons before. Um, Not that I'm opposed to it. I'm not not making a judgment call either way there. But uh, the shield of faith is what we're going to start thinking about first. And it's important to recognize as we think about these things is that we have an enemy. And that recognizing that we have an enemy, and recognizing his schemes, his attempts to knock us down, and maybe more importantly, our defenses against them, is vital. Have you ever tried to do something while having somebody actively working against you? Do you know there, are some, there are some days when it feels like that. Is that just me? There are some days you wake up and it feels like there is something, some kind of invisible force that is just pulling you backwards. That no matter what you do, nothing seems to work as it ought. I can remember many, many years ago, and I wonder if, um, if a couple of you remember this. Uh, we did an Easter egg hunt in, uh, in a church, uh, and I was involved in there uh, working with the young people there. We'd hidden eggs all over the church, and we just kind of sent these kids out on masse. Just go and find them. They're everywhere, literally everywhere. Uh, in fact, we hid so many, and we hid them so well that we started to discover them weeks later in church during, uh, during a Sunday service. Uh, but we'd hidden these eggs all over the building. And what we've done to try and make it last a bit longer, so you only find one at a time. When you get them, you have to bring it back to the central location, and you leave it in the basket there. And so you're going to go out and find one, go out and find one, just kind of keep things going a little bit longer. Now, what they didn't know is, as they were doing this, in an attempt to kind of prolong the activity just that little bit more, because youth workers, they're all about kind of keeping these things going that little bit longer, um, we decided to take the eggs out of their basket just a few at a time so they didn't realize, and kind of re-hide them just to perpetuate the game. Uh, and it got so frustrating because they would, they would go past places and they'd know that they'd looked there, but all of a sudden there were eggs again. And it was just like, wow, how are there so many of them? It's just like, it keeps going, expecting to come back, find this massive pile of eggs. Uh, and it was just funny because eventually a few of them figured it out and realized they need to start taking these eggs with them and not dropping the bus because they knew what was going on. They'd cottoned on that, that somebody was actively working against them in their pursuits. And that they needed to change this. That they needed to change their approach in order to succeed. And the Apostle Paul here talks about this idea of the flaming arrows. Uh, And in an excellent work of satire, C.S. Lewis writes, and if you've never read the Screwtape Letters, let me encourage you, it's a a very short book. It is thoroughly entertaining, uh, as as C.S. Lewis can be. Uh, Very, very short. But the concept, it's the idea of of a senior demon writing to a junior demon about what he calls his patient, about a young man who becomes a Christian and, and how he should handle this, how he should work on him, what he should do, the activity. And again, it's a complete work of fiction, and Lewis takes great pains at the start, not to kind of read it as, as reality, but, but importantly, to read it as an understanding, to be aware of the spiritual forces that go on around us. And he writes uh, this, this senior demon by the name of Screwtape, writes to his nephew, this junior demon, and he writes these words. He says, it doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their uh, their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder uh, Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And it struck me, what a, what a terrifying idea, but how incredibly insightful. You know, so often we think about these, these big things, these catastrophes in life, these traumas, these, these moments that kind of that shipwreck our faith or, or change the course of our life forever. And yet so often it is not those big things that make the difference, but it's the cumulative effect of the tiny moments in our life that define us and determine our direction. And Lewis is right to identify those small, seemingly insignificant thoughts or actions that have the power, not just to change our focus or our character, but the course and the direction of our destinies. It's those small things, all the items, uh, all, all the items that the armor of God gives us insight, is to protect us from these schemes. But we're going to focus on these two this morning, and I. Thinking about flaming arrows. Just a quick—has anyone ever been shot by a flaming arrow? Put that hand down. That's a lie. (laughs) Because if you have, you need to come up and tell us a little bit what that experience was like. But uh, yeah, because that would—that would be a story that we'd have to stop right now and listen to that, right? The reason you would set fire to an arrow, generally speaking, is because uh, if if hitting the target wasn't necessarily the focus, if you couldn't manage to impale what you were after, then setting it on fire will do the job. That that you don't have to necessarily hit the thing that you're trying to kill, but if you can set it on fire, you cause the right amount of chaos and destruction and damage. I've heard one preacher say that the schemes of the devil could be as polarized as winning the lottery all the way through to to kind of losing your home. The the focus is is, is whatever the devil can do to take our focus off Jesus, whether that be a great positive thing or a great negative thing, it has the same effect. That it's not about simply making your life miserable. The the devil is perfectly happy with, with making your life as comfortable and as easy as possible if that gets you to neglect your faith. And again, just to... To make reference to that book again, if you read The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, you'll see these ideas that so often it's not about making life difficult or awful, but just distracting, just taking the focus away from the, the bigger things of life, just focusing what, what doesn't really matter, but, but we, can, we so often make such a big deal of. The enemy's focus, these flaming arrows, are designed to gradually turn our focus away from our trust and our faith in Jesus. And so the question is, well, how does faith protect us? How does faith operate as a shield? And one of the greatest passages on faith in the Bible is found in Hebrews chapter 11. I'll read a couple of verses just to kind of give us this, this idea of when we talk about faith, what should be at the forefront of our mind. And Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. that. he starts off by painting this picture of faith Faith isn't about about optimism. Faith isn't simply about uh, about hope, as in, I hope this happens, or wouldn't it be nice if. But faith is a confidence in hope. that, That it's not an empty hope. That when my children finish school at the end of the day, they hope their father picks them up. But they do that because there's a consistent track record, save maybe once or twice, where that happens that there is an assurance that that will take place. So when we have hope in God, when we have faith in God, it's not just an optimism. It's not, wouldn't it be nice if this was true and this worked out? But this is a confidence based on something. He goes on to say in, in, in verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And, and this, uh, this should be easy for us to understand because ultimately for, for, for God to, to find joy in, in what is going on, it's, it's a demonstration of our trust in him, our reliance in him, that the nature of true relationship is is that trust in the other person, is that giving of yourself, that vulnerability, that openness to that other person, that we please God when we place our confidence in him. And he says in verse 13, all these people, and he spends the whole chapter looking through the Old Testament, looking through these great stories of faith, people who placed their trust in the word of God. It says all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. That faith is a confidence in the truth and promises of God's word. It's a confidence that comes from knowing and experiencing God. It's not to say that we never struggle or, or that we never doubt, but that even when we do, We are capable, we are equipped with the ability to continue to trust him. And I think that is important when we think about how faith operates as a shield. Faith is our answer to the challenges of the world. Again, to borrow from C.S. Lewis one final time, I promise. Uh, in, In that book, The Screwtape Letters, uh, he writes, "Don't be deceived, wormwood. This is the demon that he's writing to. Our cause is never more in danger when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will." And the, the demon talks about God as the enemy. It says, uh, uh, "But still, des- still intending to do our enemy's will." Looks round upon a universe from which every trace of Him that is God seems to have vanished, and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. He's saying that the cause of the devil, the the, the schemes and the attempts of the devil to undermine your faith are never in more danger when we can look around at the world and and question if God is, is still there for us and yet still put our trust in Him. Church, faith is what allows us to trust God's Word even while we might doubt it. Even when there's a nagging voice in your head that says, can you really believe God? Can you really trust that his ways are best for you? Can you really believe that he has your best interest? Can you really believe that what he promises will come true for you? Will you really believe that he's going to be there for you when things get difficult? Do you really believe that he's going to see you through this season of darkness? Do you really believe that he's not abandoned you? When challenges like that come, When those darts fly through the air aimed at you, the the defense that you have is even then, even when you cannot see God, you can trust him for the future. That your defense against external attack is even if I can't see, I can trust. Because what it is based on is based on that trust that I can put my hope in the promises of God. I can place my belief that what he says is true, that I can live God's truth, even though the world around me is calling me to compromise it. That faith provides me that option. That we look back and we see what God has done. We look back and we see his faithfulness. We look back and we see his promises in his word. We say, I choose to place my trust behind those promises. I choose to build my life behind that defense. Faith provides us that option, and we raise the shield of faith. I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but I think it's important to understand when you, when you think about things from the context that Paul was writing from, is that so often the, the purpose of a shield, other than simply providing you with defense, and back then, whether you're talking about the Roman shield or the earlier Greek style shield or whatever it was, generally they were quite large, so much so that you could kind of crouch behind it, and provide you with suitable defense, not just for kind of immediately in front of you, but down to your legs and up to your eyes. And they worked best not when you were standing alone, but when you were standing side by side with somebody. And I'm sure we've all seen images of the Roman kind of tortoise formation, in which you would interlock the shields, the shields would be above and below, and there was that, there was that defensive position in which the shields provided defense, not just for yourself, but for those around you. And I think it's important for us to think about our faith, not simply in in individualistic terms or personal terms, but that our faith is strengthened when we stand by others. That that shield of faith is stronger, not simply when we bear it ourselves, but when we stand shoulder to shoulder with those around us. That that builds our faith, that that builds our strength. And importantly, when those faith shields are dropped, it's others that stand into that breach and defend us with their faith. Let's jump on to the helmet of salvation. Now ask, what goes on inside your head? Have been asked that question? I've got on a daily basis of my children. Someone ever stops to because what on earth were you thinking? It's obviously a rhetorical question, but have you ever stopped and kind of taken an audit of your thoughts leading up to a terrible moment or decision? You ever done that? How on earth did we get to here? What is going on up here that allows that to happen? And I was having this conversation with my wife this morning, uh, one of our children, and for the sake of anonymity, I will not name which one, you know, one in four chance of guessing, so I think that, that provides them with a degree of anonymity. But one of them decided that they, they just weren't going to do what they were asked. And, uh, and as these things tend to do, uh, the more you try and insist that it's a good reason to, to, you know, to lay this request out that, you know, uh, food and clothes are a kind of a general good idea for human beings. And so you're right to push the issue. Um, and it, uh, it descends into utter madness that results in things being thrown and, and words being shouted. Would we'll be as ambiguous as that, right? And I just, got, I just got to the point, it's like, how on earth do you get to the point where that is the appropriate response to what was going on? Like, what is going through? And, and we were trying to go, well, how on earth can we understand their thinking? Because it seems so, so illogical, so absurd, that like, like, what was going on? And I, and I, I thought, well, actually, let's, let's stop and think about it for a second. When you're a child and, you know, you don't have those processing powers, you don't actively think about everything that you do. Not that we all actively think. Who actively thinks about every decision they ever make? It doesn't happen that we like to think we're a lot more logical than we really are. But the idea is if, I said to, I said to my wife, I said, listen, when I get cross at you, because I thought probably better to have me be the bad guy in the story rather than her. So if I get cross at you, sometimes I might snap and backbite with a nasty comment or something, uh, something silly or something unnecessary because I'm angry, right? In that moment, I wasn't in control of what was going on. Because if I was being rational about it, I would know, well, actually, it's, it's a net loss for me. I might feel good in the moment saying something kind of witty and sharp and a little bit mean but I know that it's, it's not in my best interest in the long run. And so we all do that. We say things or we do things without rationally thinking it through all the time. And the problem is, is, is what goes on in our head is not always something that we are actively in control of. And Whether you're a small child who thinks that the most appropriate response to asking to be dressed is to throw things down the stairs, or whether you're an adult who, in an equally proportionate manner, when someone says something that upsets you, or when you're in a bad mood and you feel the most appropriate response is to make that person feel small or silly, we are not actively in control of everything that we think and do. Because, church, what goes on in your head determines who you are. What you think becomes what you do. And the problem is, it's not the thought in the, con- the conscious thought in that moment, but the way that you respond, the way that you think is built over a course of your lifetime, over a, over a whole uh, host of small, seemingly insignificant actions. And what you do, what you do repeatedly becomes who you are. And this is not just affirmed by, by modern psychology and, and the idea that we change our behavior through how we think in things like cognitive behavioral therapy, but this is something the Bible affirms and has affirmed uh, for, for thousands of years. Well, would you look at the book of Romans, Romans twelve 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Allow the way that you think, the way that your brain operates, the way that you process information, allow that to be transformed by the gospel. Philippians 4.8 says finally brothers and sisters whatever is true whatever is noble whatever is right or pure or lovely or admirable if anything is excellent or praiseworthy think about such things allow these things to permeate your mind allow these thoughts to be the ones that run through your day allow that things that are going into your head to be positive and strengthening things good things that will build you up and affirm you in 1 Peter uh, one thirteen. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that was brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, prepare your thinking. Allow the way that you think in the future to be informed by what you're doing right now. In another book, if you want another book recommendation, if you've got time to read more than one book in the next however long. Uh, Craig Groeschel's Winning the War in Your Mind is another one I'd love to recommend on this topic. Uh, And he says, our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. He says, what we think shapes who we are. Church, be careful what you give access into your mind. If you imagine that your, your mind was like your home, who have you given, who's got a Think about it now. List the people in your head that have a key to your house. Now, if if you don't know who's on that list, let me encourage you to maybe change your locks or, or just think about that process again. Because for at least, I'm hoping for all of us, no judgment here, but in theory, my advice to you this morning would be know who can access your house. Make sure that they are reasonable people, safe people, people you trust, people you don't mind just turning up unannounced and just appearing in your living room unexpected. I'm sure for most of us, if not all of us, we know what that, what that list of people is. When we hand a key to somebody, we, we hand a substantial piece of our trust. My neighbors gave me their key uh, yesterday. They were out at a wedding, and they wanted me to, to walk their dog and just let them out for a wee in the middle of the night. And, um, and the temptation was to go there and you know, unplug all their light bulbs and, and turn off, just, just, just to do something amusing for my own entertainment. But I thought, no, they've, they've given me something. They've trusted me with this. I'll do it next time. But imagine, to make sure he doesn't listen to this one actually, imagine we treated our mind with the same level of security. Imagine we actively thought, what am I giving access to my brain today? What am I allowing to inform the way that I think? What am I allowing uh, to inform the way that I process the world around me? Am I, am I following the Apostle Paul's words in uh, Philippians 4? Am I thinking about the things that are good and, and noble and, and excellent and pure and lovely? Am I, am I looking at admirable things? Am I looking to, to filter positive things into my mind and into my life? I've got a nasty habit. I know if you, any of you do this. Kind of looking at your, your phone will tell you exactly how much time you've spent on any given application or uh, or, or, or kind of general activity. Is anyone ever, I do this on a weekly basis, and I hate it. And, uh, and it kind of goes, you've spent 75% more time on your phone this week than last week. And I'm thinking, just been shamed by it. Like, I'm like, I own you, phone. Stop making me feel. It. But you look, and you look, at. it's like, I've spent how many hours on YouTube? What is that about? And you look back, and you think, what have I allowed into my life? And I sometimes look at my phone and go, how is it that I've spent so much time staring at this tiny little screen in my hand? How much of that was done passively? How much of that was was done without even thinking about what I'm consuming? Have you ever stopped and looked back at your your kind of recent history? If you kind of watch Netflix or if you've got uh, other services are available. um, Just stop to look back. what, What have I watched over the last couple of weeks? And not just for kind of the, the volume of stuff that you've watched. And sometimes that's something you need to check yourself with. But, but what have I allowed into my life? What have I been feeding my heart and my mind and my passions and my creativity with? Because I don't buy the excuse that you can watch something passively. I, I don't buy it. I don't think, I don't think it's true. I don't, I don't understand how you can consume information without, it, at least on a very small level, inform even a small part of you. What are you feeding your soul? what are you what are you putting inside? And when I say your soul, I'm not talking about this kind of ooh, kind of ghosty kind of idea of, of this part of you that we're not quite sure what it is, but I'm about the very core of who you are. what are you feeding yourself? I've got a general rule that I break way too often I don't give my chip, my kids chips more than once a week. It's so easy to give them chips because they like chips and chips are easy to cook. and no one, no one argues and everybody finishes their food and it makes life easy. But, but, but it's this idea, it's no, I know it's no good for them, I know it doesn't help, it just makes my life easy, but that's the only benefit of it. And how often do we live on this kind of solid diet of, of junk, spiritual junk, stuff that is going in, it's not, it's not feeding creative passions It's not driving us to be better. It's not turning us towards Jesus. It's not motivating us towards action. It's not building compassion. And church, I'm not saying you can't can't consume stuff that is entertaining, but I'm saying be aware of what you're doing. Is it driving you to be better? Are you engaging it completely passively and just allowing this stuff unfiltered access to your mind? Church, I think it's okay that we engage with culture. It's okay that we watch the latest television program, whatever it is, and And I don't want to tell you what you can and can't do, but I'm saying if you're doing it, do it intentionally. Allow there to be a a helmet on your head. Slowly getting to my point now. Allow there to be something that protects your mind from stuff that is not going to do it any good. Because it's not just about protecting our minds externally, but it's being intentional about what surrounds it. And Paul talks about a helmet of salvation. That if you talk about armor, the, the most vulnerable part of your body, that the last place you want someone to whack you is on your head. That we, we need that defense, that central place, that, that place where, 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 you know, where our most precious possession, our brain, where our consciousness itself is seated, is that protection of our mind. That salvation is central to our faith and therefore central to how we engage with the world around us. That we believe that our salvation is in Jesus. That he is our one and only hope. That, that it's a knowledge, but it's more than just knowledge. That it's this life-giving belief, this deep-rooted understanding that we have been rescued. Have you been a situation where, where you, are, you are legitimately, now, not just like, oh, it was really bad and someone came and it was better. But you are legitimately rescued from a terrible circumstance. You've been in moments like that where, where there was just, like, th- th- there was no hope otherwise. I've been in situations when I was in a, a very, very small sailing boat. I say situations, it happened once because I'm not getting in that situation again. In a, in a small sailing boat, and you, you just, like, I no longer have control of the waves around me. That I, that I am no longer in a position to control my circumstance. That there is absolutely nothing I can do to impact my situation for the better. And it is terrifying to find yourself in a moment like that. When we think of salvation, we should think of it in terms of rescue. Because again and again, the writers of the New Testament and Jesus himself look at this idea of salvation in light of the Exodus story in the Old Testament. That God delivered his people. That God rescued his people from a situation that they could not free themselves from. They were literally slaves. And that God stepped in and brought them not only liberation, from the slavery that they were in, but deliverance into new promise. And again and again and again, the writers of the New Testament point back to that story and say, that was just a foretaste of what God longed to do for you in Jesus. And it's that idea of rescue, I think, is one of the simplest ways of understanding our salvation. It is, is it that we have been rescued from something, just like the Israelites being freed from slavery, but we have been rescued for something to occupy the promised land, and to stand as a beacon of hope to the world around them. The church, we've been saved both from the corrupting mess of this world, the sin that looks to to drag us down and, and thwart God's plans and minimize the fruitfulness of our life. But we've been saved for a purpose, to be fruitful, to make an impact, to receive the promises and the Spirit of God and to spread that, to bring heaven to earth. I'm going to do a little bit of theology really, really quickly. I'm just looking at the time now. There's no such thing as quick theology, is there? That's a dangerous thing to say. But to understand that, that salvation, that, that rescue that is to occupy our minds, That is is the thing that surrounds us. That is the thing that that secures our our thoughts, our actions, our our thinking. The thing that we should should run everything through this filter. And that salvation is past, present, and future. That our salvation is something that has happened. Ephesians 2, uh, 8-9, Paul writing in this very same letter, he says, For by grace you have been saved. By grace you have, it. it's happened, it's been done, it's been dealt with, your salvation has been accomplished. And he makes a point of saying it's by grace that you didn't do it, you weren't there, you weren't involved, you didn't contribute. It's not like, like you know, you, you know it, was, it was 2% your effort and Jesus did the 98 and it was like, well done, thanks for being involved. It was by grace, it was completely of God's doing. It's been done. It's not something that we're kind of, we're, we're waiting for or we're looking at. It's been done for grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith this is not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. As Christians, we have an assurance that we have already been saved, that Jesus has done everything. That when we, when we allow that thought to occupy our minds, as we allow that to surround our lives and our thinking, it, it does something. God has saved us definitively. The cross is the act by which God's salvation was accomplished. Salvation is something that has happened. But in some respects, salvation is something that is going on right now. That that right now in your life, it's not simply a matter of going, well, it's done and I can forget about it and I can carry on and do whatever. In 1 Corinthians uh, 1.18, Paul says, uh, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. He said there's something something foolish about uh, about a, a crucified Messiah. He says, but to those of us who are being saved. So those of us in this present moment, in this ongoing experience, that is the power of God. That the process of salvation, if you want the fancy theological term, sanctification, that process by which God is transforming us and renewing our minds and bringing us closer to Jesus, that is an ongoing present reality as much as it is rooted and established in a past action. But equally, salvation is something that we long for, something we look forward to in, in all its fullness, in all its certainty. It's a, uh, believers in Christ will experience salvation in the future. And Romans 5.9, Paul writes that we have, um, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That it's more than just the past what God has done for us on the cross, what we've achieved, what has been solidified in the past. It's not just what is going on about now and that process by which God is working on us, transforming our hearts and renewing our minds, but is a future salvation that we long for. That eternal hope and confidence that we have in God. Church, I want to encourage you to have salvation on your mind. That that helmet of salvation, that hope that we carry with us is to see everything, to filter everything through that recognizing what God has done for you, recognizing what God is doing through you right now and recognizing what God is calling you to be. What I've been so encouraged through this series is, is that God's desire is to equip us, that God doesn't want to just kind of leave us on our own to figure it out and, and just have a go at things and, uh, and just see how we are. God, God's desire is to provide all that we need. That God's focus is to, to give us his armor. That This isn't something that, that is ours or that we, we build or own or earn or anything like that. But it's the armor of God. is the armor that God owns. that is the, what God provides us with. That our faith and salvation, that not only are these things that, that, that build who we are, these are things that establish and protect who God is calling us to be. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to find out more about us, please visit our website, capcitycardiff.org.uk.